All right, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, everybody. Hope you can hear me fine. Yes, no, maybe just let me know in the oh, chat. Yeah, 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 you can hear me? Okay, cool. Alhamdulillah. Let's start, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa salatu wa salam on Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. We start by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and thanking him for his many blessings upon us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable this gathering to be a gathering of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept the time that we spare. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to kind of dive deep into the Quran and deduce lessons and morals that we can adopt in our lives, inshallah, but also pass on to others. So we are doing a Qur'an study on Fridays, alhamdulillah. We are kind of diving a little bit deeper into the Qur'an. We're dissecting the verses. We're not just, you know, kind of taking a superficial meaning. We're going through it in depth and and um, really looking at word for word. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose this word over that word? What does this word mean? And lessons that we can deduce from that single word, subhanAllah. So that's what we're trying to do, inshallah. And to do that, or before we do that, we need to ask the question, why are we doing that, right? What's the purpose of kind of dissecting the Qur'an or reflecting on the Qur'an so deeply? And really, it's, you know, out of the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do what is known as tadabbur. Tadabbur is to reflect, to ponder, to contemplate. That was really why the Qur'an has been sent. In fact, there are many times in the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks this question out of disdain, out of, uh, you know, you can feel that Allah is upset with us for not doing this. Do they not ponder and reflect and contemplate the Qur'an? How could they not do so? Right? And the Qur'an has been sent as a guidance, hudan wa rahmah, many times in the, in, the, in the Qur'an it's described as guidance and mercy. And so the Qur'an, while it is great to be memorized and to be read and recited and to apply the rules of tajweed and whatnot and to kind of, you know, enjoy the, the beautiful, um, you know, rhythmic tone of it, that's great, that's awesome. However, that is lacking, that is insufficient. And unfortunately, you find that many people kind of fall into that trap where they think that that is sufficient, that that is enough. And I just had an interesting thought, and that is, you know, one of the things that the shaitan does is he tries to make us, you know, be satisfied with the status quo, right? And if we do take a certain action in any direction that may be positive, he'll try to limit that action, right? He'll try to make us be satisfied with a little of it, right? So if you have this inclination in your heart to do good, He'll try to kind of push us in the direction of do a little good. Don't do too much good. You just do a little, right? And then be satisfied with that little that you've done. And so sometimes, sometimes, even, you know, with all that's going around in the world, with all the different causes out there, whether it be the causes of our black brethren in all over the world, whether it be the cause of Palestinian brothers and sisters, whether it be the cause of our brothers and sisters in Kashmir or Myanmar or the Uyghur Muslims, all over the world there are people that are suffering and going through hardship and require our attention and as such also require our support. And sometimes, sometimes the shaitan makes us satisfied with a simple share. Right, let's share a story, right? Or maybe a small comment on, on social media and that's it. And then we're satisfied with that. And while that is a great endeavor, right? To actually be participating in the raising of awareness, it is not sufficient. It is not sufficient. Similarly, very common question that comes to shiuch is du'a, right? You, you supplicate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala every Ramadan, every night, and, you know, the iman brings us to tears and whatnot, and in the end, nothing happens, right? And so the idea here is that that shouldn't be our attitude. Our attitude should never be that you're satisfied with the du'a. The question should not be, why doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alleviate the suffering? The question should be, what did I do to alleviate the suffering? What can I say to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment when I'm asked about what I did? And will we be, will we be held account? Of course we will be. 
will be asked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what did you do? You witnessed the suffering of you know, your black brethren. You witnessed the suffering of people all over the world, but you did nothing. All you did was dua, that's it. Do you think that dua is sufficient? It is not. It actually needs to be correlated with amal, with action. We kind of talked about action last time. And speaking of which, there are the previous sessions, alhamdulillah, of the tafsir of Surah Al-Kaf and the, uh, the, you know, the, the deep dive that we're going through is actually recorded and has been, has been shared, alhamdulillah, um, and it's available. And you can actually uh, look for it. It's on a podcast, Faith Ottawa podcast. And, you know, four sessions are there, alhamdulillah, already. And this is our fifth session of Surah Al-Kaf. And it's actually been a while. The, the fourth session that we had was on, in April. And now we are already in June. We kind of took a break in Ramadan where we covered other chapters. And I think those chapters will also be shared on, on the same podcast, inshallah. So if you kind of search for the Faith Ottawa podcast, you'll find it on uh, Apple iTunes, on Google Podcast, and I, I believe also Spotify, inshallah. Now, the other question that we kind of asked is why Surah Al-Kaf? Why specifically Surah Al-Kaf? And the, you know, the Qur'an itself is all of it, each and every verse of it, of the 6,000 or so verses, they are gems in and of themselves. And we can spend hours and hours spending time reflecting on these verses. But Surah Al-Kaf has a special, a special you know, place in our hearts as believers, and also even with the Prophet, where he actually has a specific hadith where he elevates Surah Al-Kaf into a higher status. And he says that you know, whoever recites Surah Al-Kahf um, on a Friday, it would light up right, their, their lives between the two Fridays. Right? So the hadith goes, That this surah, this chapter, will light up their lives between the two Fridays. And that's a very interesting hadith to encourage us to give this special status to Surah Al-Kahf and deduce lessons from it and reflect upon it. So this is one of the reasons why we are reflecting on Surah Al-Kahf, this chapter, the chapter of the cave. Next, I want to kind of give you a quick recap of our sources. What sources are we using? And the reason why we mention these sources is so that, you know, we can refer back to them. You can, you know, if you want to kind of go a little deeper, if you want to read more about it, and I'm kind of trying to summarize these different sources for us as we go through the discussion. But at any point in time, if you want to go and refer to them, you can, you know, do that, inshallah. And so what are the sources? Well, we have, first off, the Quran.com app. So there are many Quran apps on, on our phones, but um, I like this app because it kind of has the different different translations and you can put them side by side and kind of compare them to each other. And so Quran.com, Q-U-R-A-N.com, that app is what I use. Um, and in it, I use you know the different translations that are in English of Yusuf Ali, Mamadouk um, Piktal, um, one translation by Sheikh Mustafa Khattab called the Clear Quran. There's another one by a um, professor in the UK called, his name is Abdul Halim. Um, that translation as well is a very good translation recommended by many scholars. And so there are many other translations as well. And we kind of compare them and look at them and see what are the different translations that they've used. And these translations, mind you, are human endeavors, right? They're human endeavors. They're not the Quran itself. The Quran itself is in its original form as it has been revealed to the Prophet the translations are simply human endeavors to understand the Quran, right? Just like the books of tafsir and um, explanation of the Quran, these books are also human endeavors. And so like any human endeavor, it will have mistakes and maybe have, you know, focus on something that perhaps didn't need too much focusing and maybe neglect something that needed more focusing. So what we're doing, what we're trying to do is kind of combine all of these different sources of explanation of the Quran and reflect on all of them, right? And touch upon them. 
And speaking of which, this is not, you know, the first time this kind of endeavor has been done. There's actually a very beautiful book. This is one of our sources called Safwat al-Tafsir, the elite of the books of explanation of the Quran, written by Sheikh Muhammad Ali Salbuni, a Syrian scholar. And in it, he kind of summarizes and compares between the Tafsir of Ibn Kathir, Tabari, Qurtubi, and Al-Jalalain. These four are, you know, kind of key Tafsir in our Islamic discourse, in our history. He kind of summarizes them, puts them in a very modern um, language, modern Arabic language, and um, you know the, the whole formatting of the book. It's three volumes, and by and that's not too much, by the way, because Tafsir Ibn Kathir on its own is like twelve volumes or so, right? And the other books of Tafsir have lots of volumes as well. And so, you know, the the idea here is that um, it is it's a summarized, abridged version, and it's simple to read. And so that's one of our sources as well. And then we have the message of the Quran by Muhammad Asad, which isn't in the Quran.com app, but it's um, it has his his own um, English translation. And the reason why we kind of reflect on that a little bit is that he uh, is very poetic in his words, and so you know, and he also kind of dives deep into the meanings as well. So that's one um, source. And then we have Tafhim al Quran by Sayyid Abu Al-Ala al-Mawdudi and um, the translation of it because it was originally written in Urdu and so we're reflecting on that. Sayyid Abu Al-Ala al-Mawdudi is a Pakistani scholar and then we have uh, Tafsir al-Shahrawi, right, an Egyptian scholar. That's one of the uh, sources as well and then in the shade of the Quran, that's another source by Sayyid Qutb and then we have um, another Tafsir by a Tunisian scholar. This Tunisian scholar is, um, his name is uh, Bin Ashur and the book is called at uh, the so that's uh, another source that we don't always go to because it's a bit uh, it's really long and a bit hard to read but we sometimes will go to it for certain verses from time to time so these are the sources in a nutshell in a nutshell and um so now let's kind of touch upon a few keywords from the last session, the last session, the fourth session that we had in April, it was a while ago. Let's touch on a few keywords from the Quranic verses from Surah Al-Kaf. We kind of finished verse eight. So today we'll start verse nine, which is kind of diving into the actual story of the people of the cave or the youth of the cave. We'll start that today. But before we do that, there is just a few words that we want to kind of touch upon. And so one of these words, words is the word Bekhiyun is one of the words. What does Bekhiyun mean? And so Sheikh Sharawi, he says that that word actually means that, um, and it's here, the Prophet is the one being addressed. That perhaps, O oh Prophet, you are, you know, doing this to yourself. You're, you're, you're hurting yourself by the effort that you're putting forward in inviting people to this message, in delivering this message to the people. And so Sheikh Sharawi says, You are striving in, in putting effort, so much effort, into this mission, into this, this you know, role that you have, delivering of this message to the people to the extent that this striving, this endeavor, this effort that you put forth is causing you difficulty, is causing you pain, right? Will, will lead to you being exhausted, right? To the extent that it could lead to your own destruction. So this is, you know, one of the ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is kind of um, consoling the Prophet and telling him, Basically, take it easy, right? Take it easy. Deliver the message with your heart, with your efforts, with all everything that you do. But also remember yourself. Don't exhaust yourself to the point of no return, right? So this is the the message behind that verse. But the interesting word here is bechion. And so we kind of should ask ourselves that question: What am I bechion for, right? Where do I strive my best and put my best effort forward and and exhaust myself 
right? And what do I do that for? Is it for worldly gains? Is it for status, fame, and glory? Is it for more money in the bank? Is it to live a more comfortable lifestyle, right? What is it, right? Is it to attain a certain relationship? Is that what I strive for? Or do I strive to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Where do I exhaust my energy? After all, each and every one of us has a certain capacity of, of, of energy that they have. And the question is, where do I put that energy? Where do I put most of it? Where do I put parts of it? Where, where, in which direction? Is it in the direction that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or in the direction that is pleasing to others or pleasing to society or pleasing to myself, right? So that's one of the questions that, you know, we could perhaps ask ourselves. And then the, the phrase, if they do not believe, right? That, you know, he, والسلام, is putting so much effort and he is upset that they are not believing. So why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in lam yu'minu instead of saying in kafaru, right? That they, when they, when they disbelieve, he used the words that they believe. Why? Because it kind of highlights for us that here, this is the goal. The goal is that people believe. The goal is that faith and belief be ingrained in the hearts of people. The goal isn't that you simply deliver. And sometimes we fall into that trap. We think that our goal is to deliver, right? If you want to advise somebody or give somebody any kind of advice, uh, you know, I want to just give the advice, right? That's, I've done my part. The rest is on you, right? Kind of thing. But that should not be the goal. The goal is that the advice reaches the heart of the person on the receiving end, right? That should be the goal. And so, so that will change things a little bit. How will it change things? It'll kind of be, make you mindful of what is the best way to deliver that advice. What's the best way to deliver that speech or that content to the, to the person, right? You're not just, you know, kind of venting off the content and, you know, throwing stuff out, but actually you're doing it in a way that you want it to reach the heart on the receiving end. And so here, this is, you know, one comment on that. You know, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, in limi, you know, that they don't believe that, you know, that, that belief here is the goal that we want it to reach. It's the desired outcome. And then there is the word, al hadithi is the word used to describe that message, right? He could have said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have said, risale, right? This, this message, right? Um, this Quran. But why al-hadith? Why the word hadith, which means words, really, speech? And perhaps it is um, some, you know, tafsir, we reflected on this a little bit longer last time. This is just a quick recap. Is it's perhaps so that it highlights that in the end, all you can do is preach. All you can do is invite. All you can do is use your words to the best capacity to deliver this message. In the end, the decision is still theirs, right? It's still their decision. And this kind of reminds us of a powerful verse in the Quran, and the meaning is repeated in many different verses, where Allah reminds the Prophet that his duty, his role, is the delivering of the message, right? And so, وَمَا عَلَى رَسُولِ إِلَّا الْبَلَاغُ الْمُبِينَ that it's not required of the Prophet except to deliver the message. That's, that's his role. His role is to deliver the message, but not just deliver the message, but also there's this adjective, mubin, meaning clear. The message needs to be clearly delivered to people, right? And so the idea here is that the, the role that the Prophet has and the role of anybody that follows in the footsteps of the Prophet as du'at or as people that kind of, you know, took the burden of delivering this message to people on their shoulders, people that volunteer with IAW, people that, you know, participate in any kind of da'wah activity, they are the ones that kind of are following in the footsteps of the Prophet in taking this mission on their shoulders. They do so, but they understand that that's their role. They will not convert people by force. Nobody can be forced into conversion. 
right? There's no compulsion in this deen. In fact, we are just, you know, we can only do our best, but then leave the rest in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so in numerous verses, you know, this is kind of mentioned and the Prophet is reminded of this, right? Um, in another verse, for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that, you know, your role is to deliver this, mis- this, this mission, this, this message, this, um, this, all this knowledge to the people, but then upon us, upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-hisab. Judgment is in Allah's hands. So we don't judge, right? So this is a very powerful aspect too, that we're not you know, given the role of judging people. We're given the role of delivering the message to people. Judgment is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And then you have, فَذَكِّرْ إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ مُذَكِّرْ لَسْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ بِمُسَيْطِرْ In Surah Al-Ghashiyah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells to Muhammad he tells him, that, you know, remind people for you are a person that reminds. You are not a controller of people. You can't control people. You're you're not the person that's in charge of people. You're simply given the role and the responsibility to deliver the message to the people. And so that's perhaps why the word hadith is used, that in the end, it is speech that you deliver the people and they may turn away from it if they so choose. And then in the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the judge. And then we touched on the word لِنَبْلُوَهُمْ 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 is to test them. Right. And so what is what is why am I reflecting on this word? Because it's a powerful word that kind of highlights the whole idea of tests and tribulations and trials and challenges that we face in life. And life is just that. It is not a bed of roses. It is a place of tribulation. It is a, pa- a place where we are tested, constantly tested. And it's, you know, as scholars would say, it is a place or an abode of tests. And, you know, where are we not going to be facing tests? Where are things going to be easy? That's in Al-Jannah, inshallah, right? Life is not a bed of roses. Life is full of hardships and tribulations. And as such, we are going to be constantly tested. Tested with what? Well, tested with different types of tests. And in the Quran, we're told about this in Surah Al-Baqarah, in a powerful verse that actually makes this promise. And in fact, here, even in this in this phrasing, it also makes that promise. right? The reason why that you know all this creation is created for us is to so that we will be tested. But in uh, Surah Al-Baqarah, that phrase, that word is used and it's given kind of this, this heavy emphasis that for sure it will happen. Right? And you will be tested for sure. Right? And there's the, the letter Lem, which is used for emphasis, and the letter Noon used for Tawqid. For sure you will be tested. And in fact, it's a, it's a double emphasis. For sure, for sure you'll be tested. Each and every one of us will be tested. That we will for sure be tested with fear and hunger and loss of wealth and loss of lives and loss of fruit. But then give the glad tidings, the good news to those that are patient, to those that are patient. We recognize from this verse in Surah Al-Baqarah that we actually will be tested in life. And there is there the response is what we're going to be held to account for if we are resentful and discontent and angry and, and lash out or we do things that are against the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and transgress the boundaries of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we say you know what this happened to me so that i'm gonna i'm gonna do you know horrible things and some people justify their horrible actions as such right they, they do horrible things and they justify it based on you know maybe hardship they went through or difficulties they went through or challenges that they're facing and, but there is no justification because in the end, we're going to be held to account for our reaction to the trials and to the hardships that we go through. And give glad tidings to those that are patient. And the verses, you know, kind of mention later on and say, 
um, those that when they face off against a hardship and a difficulty, they say to Allah we belong and to him we will return. And then the um, phrase ahsanu amala. And we talked about it last time a little bit in detail. And we said that, you know, the word ahsan is usually used to compare two situations, the before and after, right? That you want to always be better, better, this better than that, right? And so the idea here is that we're constantly improving. We're not just, you know, in a status quo or in a limbo state. No, we're every day we're trying to be better than the day before. And we're on this path, this journey of improvement, self-improvement, constant self-improvement towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And here, Ahsanu is used to describe the word amala, our actions, right? And we just talked about actions here that, you know, it needs to be correlated. Our diet needs to be correlated with action. Action needs to be what, you know, is showcased. It's not enough to simply believe. It needs to be reflected in your actions. The Prophet, as some supporters have said, powerful hadith that never tire of mentioning. When he says, Iman, faith, is not wishful thoughts. It's not just ideas and principles that you hold in your heart. It is what is affirmed in the heart, but also manifested, translated into action, right? Manifested and translated into action. And so that is what we're going to be held to account for. An interesting hadith here that we should perhaps ask ourselves the question, okay, what actions should I do, right? And so the question here is, is a valid question. There's a powerful hadith that says that the most beloved of actions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are the most consistent, even if little, even if little. This is hadith in Bukhari where Allah's, or the Prophet is telling us that the most beloved actions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are those that are consistent. So consistency is key, that we're regular in our actions. We're always doing this action. That's the most beloved actions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in another hadith, um, Qudsi, where uh, Allah tells us here that that there's nothing more beloved to me that my servant can come close to me with, except that which I have made obligatory upon him. So the obligations, the things that Allah commanded us to do, when we uphold those first and foremost, that is the most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, you know, what actions are there that are, you know, that we should be doing in life so that we're constantly improving? Well, you look at the obligations first and foremost. Number one, what did Allah make obligatory upon us? And we do that. One last comment before we dive into today's tafsir is um, the hadith that says, Nobody will enter Jannah because of their deeds, because of their actions. And then the Sahaba were like, what? Even you, you know, you're so righteous, you're so good, so many good deeds. Even you won't enter Jannah because of your good deeds. And he says, Even I, unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enshrouds me with his mercy. We only enter Jannah by the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't deserve Jannah, right? Because of our good deeds. But our good deeds enable us to attain, inshallah, what I mean, by the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the mercy of Allah, the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so here, there's this attributing of things. You do good deeds, but you've got to attribute the blessing that comes to you to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, including Al-Jannah. It only comes by the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All right, so let's dive into today's session. Inshallah, that is a quick recap on what we covered last. We finished verse 8 last time, and today we'll touch upon verse 9. Verse 9. And then we'll see, you know, what we can cover more than that, inshallah. So verse 9 goes as follows. It starts off with a question. Am min ajaba? 
So let's read the translation and compare the translation and then um, touch on an intro to this section by um, Said Qutb. And he, he has a very interesting intro. And we'll touch upon that. What is, what is he saying here? And so, um, Bismillah. The translation goes as follows. It actually is referred to the, um, the question here is referred to the Prophet. So the Prophet is the one being questioned. And, and that's according to most um, scholars of tafsir. But there are other interpretations which we'll touch upon, inshallah. So the question is, do you think, O Prophet, that the people of the cave and the inscription were unusual out of our signs? Right, that's one translation. Another says, do you find the companions in the cave and Al-Raqim, it doesn't translate Al-Raqim, right? So wondrous among all our other signs, right? So Yusuf Ali, he uses a bit of archaic English. He goes, or dost thou reflect that the companions of the cave and of the inscription were wonders among our signs? Do you think that the people of the cave and inscription were a wonder among our signs? That's another translation. Mustafa Khattab in his um, uh, tra translation called the Clear Quran, he says, have you, O Prophet, thought that the people of the cave and the plaque were the only wonders of our signs? And so, you know, we see here um, that there are a few things that come up, a few key words that kind of repeated. The word signs, the question, do you think that this is the most wonderful of our signs? the um, description of the people of the cave. Some say the people of the cave, some say companions of the cave, right? Um, so these two are used. And then you have the word al-Raqim, which is a mysterious word, if you think about it. What is al-Raqim? And so it is, one is used, one uses the translation inscription, another uses the word uh, plaque, another says, and this is, um, I wanna kind of bring up uh, Muhammad Asad's translation, he uses the word scriptures. And he, you know, so sometimes the scholars of interpretation or tafsir or the translators, they use parentheses to put in their own words to describe certain things. So he says, in, in parentheses, he says, and since the life of the world is but a test, and that was kind of the what we ended on in verse 8, and since the life of the world is but a test, do you really think that the parable of the people of the cave and of their devotion to the scriptures could be deemed more wondrous than any other of our messages. So this is Muhammad Asad. And I like his, his translation because he uses the word scriptures for a translation to the word Arraqim. But we'll touch upon what does Arraqim mean a little bit in depth. But before we go there, let's read the intro by Sayyid Qutb. Sayyid Qutb in Dhilal Quran he um, introduces this segment, right? Because now it's kind of a new, we've moved now. We've kind of covered the preface of the surah. The first eight verses is kind of like this intro. And now we're diving into, if you like, the, the main, the first story really in this surah. And the first story in the surah is talking about the people of the cave, the youth of the cave. And so he says, he says, now that we're going to touch upon the story of the people of the cave, and it is an example of belief and the strength of their belief. And it is given to us, it's a parable, an example, a role model for all of us so that we you know, find solace and that we are consoled and that it affects us and makes us realize how did these people fend off the difficulties they were going through with the strength of their faith, with the strength of their belief. And uh, then he says that you know, while the details of the story actually have many different um, sources and many different interpretations and you know kind of the, the details that are not mentioned in the Quran right so in the Quran there are specific details mentioned in these few verses talking about the people of the cave 
But then outside of that, in books of tafsir, in books of explanation of the Quran, people elaborate, right? They elaborate and they go a little for, further and some even go far as to look up different legends and stories that have been passed down um, by the people of the book, whether they be Christian or Jews. And so he's saying here that, you know, there are many different ruayat, many different narrations about these, uh, this story. He says, however, but what we will do is we will stop at the lines that were drawn by the Qur'an. Basically, we're only going to share the details that are in the Qur'an and not share other than that. We'll only use the Qur'an as our source because that's the only source that we are sure of its authenticity, right? And the other sources out there, you know, from different narrations and different legends and different stories that are kind of shared here and there, we, and some of them have been quoted in books of tafsir, we don't know their sources, we don't know how authentic these sources are, and so we're not going to rely on them. We're going to rely on the Qur'an alone. This is Sayyid Qub. And so this is, I like this intro, because he's highlighting why it's better to avoid these other stories. And he says that in fact, in this surah itself, in Surah Al-Kahf itself, there are verses that say to do just that, that tell us not to focus on the unnecessary, unneeded details, right? Or you know, the questions that arise sometimes when you kind of hear a story, you know, if, if you've ever kind of told a story to a child, um, they would sometimes interject with questions. Okay, how many were they? What was the, how did they look like? What were this or that? He was asking about details. Now, likewise, in the Quran here in Surah Al-Kaf, there are questions that arise, such as how many were they? These people of the cave, these youth of the cave, how many were they? We don't know. In fact, their number is not mentioned clearly, right? There, there's a verse that says, you know, some people say they're this, some people say they're that, but you know what? Allah knows. Right, and basically, what is the message from that? Well, when we come to that verse, we'll break down a little bit deep, deeply. But basically, the message is: don't worry about those other details. Focus on what Allah shared with you. What Allah shared with you is sufficient. Right, the details Allah focuses on are sufficient for the meaning that is to be deduced from the story. The purpose of the story is not to be a historical account, right, where you kind of put in all the details in. That's not the purpose. The purpose of sharing the story is to deduce a lesson that we may adopt in our lives. And so put aside.